0: What I knew as a child, and I've been spending my whole life trying to understand and articulate, is that we can experience the divine or the sacred. And we can experience something that is more than, that something is greater than, something that is beyond us, and not know it. Welcome
1: to Power of Place Stories of the Pacific Northwest. I'm Edward Krigsman. Last time we enjoyed a conversation with Anthony and Marley Love of the YouTube channel Traveling While Black in Seattle. They talked about how their encounters with new people, attitudes, and places in the Pacific Northwest caused them to relocate here. And a moving here then led them to seek a higher calling than the corporate jobs that brought them here, a calling tied to exploration, service, and connection to others, especially to people historically excluded. Today I invite you to pour a cup of warm tea and pull up a comfortable chair for an honest conversation with a wise friend about the deepest matters of the heart. From the earliest days of her childhood, our guest has spent a lifetime seeking a closer relationship with the divine, a journey that eventually led to her conversion to Judaism. Raised in the Reformed Calvinist tradition with a childhood goal of becoming a minister, our guest went on to study Christian theology at the University of Chicago Divinity School, serving as a lay minister and teacher before leaving a tenured position in academia to pursue a literary career. Her writings include Strangers and Sojourners, Stories from the Low Country, 21 linked stories from the diverse and vital rural culture of the Low Country of South Carolina, and A Woman of Salt, a novel that explores the life of a young woman interspersed with tales of the wife of the biblical character Lot. They also include a spiritual autobiography, Seeking God and Losing the Way, and it's an exploration of spiritual struggle in the midst of ordinary life. And she's currently working on a novel about the biblical character of Miriam. She's also a contributor to Tablet, an online magazine focused on Jewish news and culture. And her articles span topics such as the relevance of Jewish kosher laws on modern life and how traditional Jewish death rituals honor the human body. And so for today's podcast, we'll explore the spiritual dimensions of place thanks to the poetic insights of a modern mystic who has spent a lifetime seeking a closer relationship to the divine. And at the end of today's podcast, You'll learn how you can participate in the building of a traditional Jewish sukkah, an example of a sacred place from today's conversation. And you can do this regardless of your religious affiliation or beliefs. So let's welcome our guest today, theologian, author, feminist, novelist, and mystic, Mary Lane Potter. Welcome, Mary.
0: Thank you, Edward. Thank you for inviting me.
1: It's great to have you. So um, would you mind just sharing a little bit about your journey through space and time to the Pacific Northwest?
0: Yeah. I grew up in a very small immigrant community, and I benefited greatly from that. It was a really firm embrace, you know, of this culture. But at the same time, I felt that I wasn't willing to pay the price in a community like that to shut out the world in order to be more holy or to do God's work. You know, I loved the world from an early time, and we were supposed to be separate from the world. So to me, I just—it didn't sit right with me. So, for instance, we were not uh, supposed to speak to our Roman Catholic neighbors. And and then it turned out my—I was a little bit rebellious. So my best friend was Dickie Collins next door, who was Roman Catholic, and I saw his— idols on the wall. And we talked and we were friends. So that's really kind of the way my life started is just that I knew there was a bigger world out there. And I loved my community. And as as you said, I I wanted to be a domine. I wanted to be a preacher because they were the intellectuals in our community. But I, I wanted the world as well as the sacred. So I've actually been trying my whole life to fit that together. Just like, how do God and the sacred or the profane and the sacred, how do they fit together? They're not opposites. They're not mutually exclusive. I somehow knew that. And not only was I very, 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 very churched, you know, as a child, but I had a lot of what people might now call sort of mystical experiences. Experiences of oneness, you know, with with nature. So those things really formed me. And I was always, as people used to say, God intoxicated, which people don't talk about too much anymore. And for many years, I was ashamed of. Because how does one talk about God? You're talking about the unknown. You're talking about the unknowable. And that's why my favorite name for God that I used in my memoir is the unnameable. And you could say the unknowable one. So. What I knew as a child and I've been spending my whole life trying to understand and articulate is that we can experience the divine or the sacred and we can experience something that is more than, that something is greater than, something that is beyond us and not know it. meaning not be able to articulate it, not be able to to put it all in little bounded spaces and encapsulate it in words. And many people in the world are open to this beyond. We may all name it differently. We all may experience it somewhat differently in our cultures, you know, and in our bodies. But it's a real experience. And it's part of our human experience. So, therefore, I think this is something to explore. And if you shut it down and say, no, that's not part of experience, that doesn't exist, that's not real, then what are you saying, you know, to, you know, millions and billions of people around the world that we're too dumb to understand how the world, our experiences are not real? no, that that can't be. So I think it's easy to shut down spirituality and religion. It is. It's very easy, especially the way with many religious people are acting today. But it's much harder to say this too is part of our human experience, to experience that something greater than, that something beyond that we can sense and feel and experience, but not know.
1: So, Mary, let's go on and pursue a conversation about, you know, what you call the unknowable. I'd like your help. And in fact, the reason why I wanted to have this conversation with you in the first place is that three years ago, I attended a Jewish funeral of a man that I had never known while he was alive. I joined to make a minion, which in Judaism is a group of 10 people, in this case, 10 men. And the rabbi who officiated shared a story about the unknowable part of this person that was part of his body while he was alive yet at the same time was part of something greater. But what really struck me were the traditional words of consolation that we would use at a funeral or during the mourning process. Which translates in English, may God comfort you among the other mourners of Zion and Jerusalem. And the word for God in this case means the place.
0: So, This podcast is about stories, right? It is. Well, the name HaMakum is not a philosophical name. It's not a mystical name. It comes from a story. And it comes from a story in Genesis, Genesis 28, the story of Jacob. And let me just kind of quickly retell this story because it's really important to the meaning. Jacob has just been sent away from home, his home place, right, by his father, to find a wife. He's sent into a, an unfamiliar place where he doesn't know, and he has just cheated his older brother Esau out of his inheritance. His older brother is a strong man, you know, he's a hunter, you know, and um, so if I were Jacob, I would be a little disoriented, I'd be a little bit scared, because he's out there, you know, on a journey, what if Esau finds him and, fi- and figures out what has happened? So he's there, it gets dark, And then the story says this is in this story the word makom comes up at least five maybe more times. So it says Jacob came to a, a certain place makom, and then because it was dark he had to stay in this place makom. So he goes to sleep, but he he uses a rock for a pillow, and then during the night he has a dream. And in the dream, he sees that ladder or staircase and the angels ascending and descending back and forth. So the profane and the sacred are being connected for him. And then he says, in the dream, God stood right next to him, right next to him in the dream. I mean, it's just amazing. So when he wakes up, he says, truly, this is the dwelling of God. God was in this place, hamakom, or bamakom, and I did not know it. So then, of course, the rabbis in um, rabbinic Judaism pick up this language, and they say, what, what does this mean? Is the world uh, the house of God, the place, you know, where God dwells, or is God the dwelling of the world? Does that, Is that what hamakom means? And they say, the world is not the house of God, it's not the dwelling of God. God is the dwelling of the world, meaning this universe that we experience is so much more than we can even imagine, let alone think. And that's what the place, God as the place means. And that we are all, each of us individually and as a human species, which is extremely important, are held. We live and breathe and move and have our being in that larger reality.
1: So the Torah offers 70 names for God and the rabbinical era added 90 more. Tell me about why this particular name, which as you said comes from Jacob's dream, and is admittedly strange to modern ears, resonates for you, Mary.
0: One of the reasons I love this language is that even though in the 19th century, theologians and and philosophers were already saying, you know, this idea of God as a big person in the sky, as a super person, you know, who sticks his, his little finger in the world every now and again or doesn't, you know, that no longer fits with what we understand about the way our universe works. So that is an old, old, old concept of God that many people do still cling to. But I like this other language because it takes us out of that God is a person reality and said, we can use all kinds of different images for God, you know? Images from nature, like the mother hen or the eagle, you know, lifting us on the wings. Or for me, the ocean is a wonderful image for God. It buoys you up, you know, it's constantly changing and moving. So that's what one of the the beautiful things about Hamakom. It starts us to think about God in a way that is not just related to us, and our human reality. Because we are not, you know, newsflash, we are not the pinnacle of creation, you know? We are one part of this amazing universe. We are one of the last evolutions. But for some people, when they talk about God now, it's like God is the new that our world is pregnant with, that we can't imagine because our mind, our consciousness is not large enough yet. But It is in process.
1: So thinking about Hamakom, yes, it does translate as God, but the Hebrew actually is the place. It's a particular name of God. And so why, at the time of mourning, do we refer to God as the place?
0: I think of it in relation to a very short one-line poem from Pablo Neruda, the Chilean poet, who says, there is no point wider than that of grief. And, you know, when we are mourning, when we have lost someone who's very close to us, someone we we really love, grief can swallow us, you know? And grief becomes our entire world. That's why there are so many rituals around mourning. We need to protect mourning people and give them space because their world, they are being swallowed up in grief. And that is not a bad thing, you know. But when you then call upon God in the mourners as hamakom, that is still reminding you in your intense experience of being closed down into grief and closed off from the world, you know, in the first, in Shiva, and then in 30 days, and then you go out into the world, you are closed off. But even in your closed-offness, you are still related to that something larger that is holding you. Even though you might not feel it, you have to remember that. And to me, that's a very beautiful thing. We all need to remember that. And to me, that's what hamakom is about, and the sukkah too. It's about not closing ourselves off, which we are so tempted to do.
1: So you had mentioned the sukkah, and so I think when we were talking even before the podcast about a kind of architecture and place from a standpoint of a built place, you had brought up the sukkah as an example of a form of architecture that's maybe sacred. Or So for our listeners that are not familiar with this particular Jewish holiday and tradition, maybe just a little bit, what is the holiday of sukkot and situate the sukkah within
0: that? Let me give you my definition first. Okay. A sukkah is a pop-up sacred space all right? So every year after Yom Kippur, Jews celebrate the holiday of Sukkot, which is the plural of a sukkah, one sukkah, two sukkot. And a sukkah is a temporary dwelling. I love that word for God or for you know the sukkah. It's a temporary dwelling. It's a little hut that you build and you dwell in for seven days. And it is a number of things. It is partly a harvest festival And partly also a way to remember when the Hebrews, uh, having left Egypt as slaves, wandered in the desert for 40 years and they built temporary dwellings. They were basically nomads for those, you know, uh, 40 years. So this commemorates that. that It's it's a historical moment and an agricultural So it's an interesting
1: holiday that it's twofold. You know, there's agricultural holiday, which is... From the earth, and then there's this historical moment,
0: right? Of right. In so the it's desert. very connected to the earth. So you build a temporary structure of uh, four walls with an opening in one wall, and you're supposed to eat and drink and read and pray and have friends in in, in this. Um, and you can even sleep in it. You don't have to if it's raining or snowing, as it did in my Minnesota sukkah. But what I love about about the sukkah is openness, because the roof has to be open. It has to be more shade than sun, but you have to be able to see the stars. You have to be able to see the sky. So this is my favorite holiday, and the reason is because it fits so well with my journey of trying to be open and listen more and more and more to the world while being located in a particular place. So you have this very particular little pop-up Jewish sacred space, and you say prayers in there, and all the while you've decorated it, you have to decorate it with the the roof, with branches that have been pulled from the earth. So you're right, it's very earthy, as well as spiritual.
1: So the rule is it has to be something uh, from the earth. From the earth. But not any particular species of plant. Right,
0: that's right. So these sukkahs will start springing up all over, but those are intentional sacred spaces. There's nothing particularly beautiful about them, Or and they're temporary. This is really, really important. They're temporary. They remind us of, I think, of the fragility of our lives, the impermanence of our lives, how vulnerable we are, and in our vulnerability, how we need to be open to those who are not like us. So you know. Animals come in the sukkah and eat your apples that are hanging, you know. The stars come in. We invite ushpizin, who are exalted guests, who have been long dead, you know. So to me, a sukkah is an opportunity to say, What are the walls that I have constructed around myself in my daily life that are now confining me, that are now imprisoning me? What are my habits? What are my ideas? What are my ideologies that make me feel comfortable and are wonderful but also have this edge of Boxing me in so that I am not open to listening to someone who does not share my experience, whether that's my experience of my body, my sexuality, or my experience of divinity or no divinity in the world. And to say, we're all here on a journey, so let's listen to one another. I mean, that's what's exciting to me about life is talking to people and listening to what their different experiences are. And a sukkah, to me, is an open invitation to that. And it doesn't cut God out. We leave it open to the beyond.
1: So we ask our guests to bring an item that matters to them, and there's some stone on the table in front of us. I was wondering if you could share what you brought in.
0: Well... As I talk about pick that up and hold it, all right? That is a petrified camel bone that was offered to me in the Sinai wilderness by a Bedouin guide named Rashid. And I had been bivouacking in the Sinai for about five days in research for a novel I was writing. And that was quite an experience because they spoke a little Hebrew and of course Arabic and no English, I spoke English, a little Hebrew, and no Arabic, you know. And, but we communicated extremely well. We listened to each other. And I fell in love with the two camels. Merzuga mm-hmm. and uh, Fragella, were the camels. And at the end, you're not supposed to take anything out of the Sinai Desert. Just like when you leave Hawaii, you do not take anything off sacred ground, right? And I had had a powerful, powerful, powerful experience being in that wilderness And they offered me a choice of several objects. I don't even remember what the other objects were. And this camel bone immediately, you know, uh, I just knew that that's what I wanted.
1: What is this relation to the Sinai Desert and and the holiday of Dakota?
0: Because that's where they were wandering.
1: Right, okay. Right? So
0: the sukkah was where they were wandering all over the Sinai, you know, peninsula, as far as we we know, right? Um, So that's the relation to Sukkot. And then the relation to sacred and profane is for something in your life to become sacred, a place, let's say, it does not have to have special qualities or be amazing or knock you over with its beauty or anything. It's the opposite. So like Mount Sinai, Not a big mountain. It's like for the Nepalese, they wouldn't even call it a peak. It's like a little hill, you know? What makes Mount Sinai special, what makes it sacred, it's not sacred in and of itself. What makes it sacred is that 600,000 or so ex-slaves together in public had a powerful experience, transformative experience there of liberation. That's what makes that a special place. It's like when you love somebody, you know, when you love the people you loved, you love them because they're the most incredibly handsome or beautiful person in the world or because they're the most intelligent, no. They're special because you love them, Mm -hmm. because of your ongoing relation, your intimacy, your history with them. That's the way it is with sacred spaces. Our bodies have been in that either architectural space or that landscape, over many times. I mean, that's why, you know, the Atlantic Ocean is, is so special to me. I was a little kid swimming in that ocean.
1: So, Mary, you've traversed the United States, but also the world. Sounds like some of these travels are related to preparing for your literary works. Can you share a space that you've encountered somewhere in the world that's architectural and sacred?
0: Well, I went to Southeast Asia. And so I'm in Cambodia looking at at temples, and there were these temples that were way off, and you had to hike up to get them, different different places. And then I kept noticing in some of these out-of-the-way ones that there were these very interesting stones between the grass or the profane world, right, and the actual temple. And there's usually there are usually a few steps up into the temple. And I noticed that in several of these temples, there aren't many, there were a, a large, flat stone that sometimes had the shape of a lotus on the outside. So it wasn't a, a semi... It was kind of semicircular, but then it was kind of scalloped. And I would stand on that stone and... It was just a profound experience, standing on that stone. I just felt it was a liminal space. I just felt that the architects, because it was Sri Lankan architects.
1: How long ago were these?
0: Oh, gosh, they're so ancient. Thousands, yeah, yeah, thousands, thousands of, of years, years old. Yeah. And, and um, I knew that these, that's what these architects you know, could have been thinking, that the passage from the profane to the sacred is a dangerous one. And so they're giving people a liminal space to sort of catch your breath, you know, and to, to sort of uh, gather your intention maybe, you know, um, or whatever you're going to do to realize before whom you stand, whatever, you know.
1: And you showed me those photos, so they're curvilinear, so they're also kind of curvaceous, which is... Sort of a gentle softening versus these rectilinear stairs that are sort of below and above it.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I like that. I like that very much. And, you know, some of them had, you know, Hindu symbols on them, but the ones in Sri Lanka, but the ones I didn't were so old and worn. They didn't. They were very plain, which I, I really loved. They were beautiful. And I just started to think about that, about that passage from the sacred to the profane and how any architect can think about how to move our bodies into a deeper, more meaningful place.
1: Early, you shared a story, that story of Jacob, as the source of the name of Hamakom, or God as it, the place. And the story involved a strange dream, that dream of Jacob, in which angels were ascending and descending a ladder. And also that God was standing right next to the ladder. And you explained this story as a way of kind of illustrating the transition from a sacred space to a profane space. Dreams figure largely in your own works, especially in your spiritual autobiography. And many of us don't even remember our dreams, but you seem to remember yours. What do you learn from them?
0: I take dreams very, very, very seriously. And, you know, dreams are not... Uh, prophet. Well, prophecy is not foretelling the future, you know. Prophecy is understanding in depth what's really going on around us right now. But I'm not interested in dreams about what's going to happen. Dreams are really—they just invite me to have a look at what's really going on deep down in my life. Maybe something I'm—I'm I'm not seeing. Maybe something I'm denying. Um, and dreams can be healing, you know? I've had, an I dream where it actually, I woke up healed emotionally, you know, from, from the dream. I, I I would never, no one could ever talk me out of that, you know? Um, so I think people should pay attention to their dreams. You have to, you know, you have to um, seduce them a little bit. You know, you put, a, put an empty journal by your, your bed and, you know, put a pen or a pencil there. And, you know, they might not happen every night, but, the rabbis actually said, the ancient rabbis have uh, uh, said, um, a dream is like a letter. So open it. You know, why not open a letter written to you? So I, I you know, I'm not persuaded by it. it's. Oh, it's just random, you know, firings of your synapses. I, you know, we are imaging people. We are not simply intellects, that's not conscious, consci- we are imaging all the time. We have this incredible nerve net that images and our minds are imaging. So why not pay attention to another way our body is imaging our life to us that we might be able to learn from?
1: Mary, you've had a life that has brought you all over the country and all over the world. What brought you to the Pacific Northwest?
0: From a very early age, I don't know why. I don't know why I had an obsession with Puget Sound. And I have no idea because we were always in the Midwest or on the East Coast. But I just had an obsession with Puget Sound, and I do love salt water. But the ocean, I really do think of the ocean as my mother as the primordial soup, you know, out of which we all come, and it buoys me, it heals me, it's ever-changing. And that's the other thing. Our, our ideas of God as unchanging, and static are just, pfft. those are way old, you know? But the ocean is always moving. Everything is in motion, and the diversity of life, and so you name it, I mean, you can pull so many, you know, images for me for the divine or the sacred out of the ocean and that unknowable horizon and so forth. Um, anyway, Puget Sound. So I came here because I had an obsession with Puget Sound. I have to live by salt water. And um, we were living in South Carolina, Atlantic, salt water, which was wonderful, but my kids were becoming bar and bat mitzvah age. And the Jewish community in South Carolina is wonderful and Charleston is wonderful and it wasn't as diverse or as open. And I wanted my kids to bump into Jews who looked all different ways. I wanted more diversity, you know. I wanted them to see, you can be Jewish anywhere in many different ways. There's no one prototype, you know, that you have to follow. And so that was one of the reasons we moved here, because I knew there was a diverse Jewish community here and the natural beauty, salt water.
1: So Mary, we've covered a lot of space and time. We've gone back thousands of years, but we're here in the Pacific Northwest. And so I wanted to ask you, as I ask all of our guests, can you share a place in the Pacific Northwest that matters most to you? Maybe a place that resonates with a lot of the themes that you've shared today.
0: There's so many, but my favorite one is a uh, volunteer park. Um... It's kind of my home, you know. I feel like whenever I feel, you know, you get, you just feel like not yourself or you feel out of sorts, you feel a little lost. Then I take a walk to Volunteer Park and I usually start by threading the needle, you know, like Noguchi's beautiful sculpture, The Black Sun. And, you know, you can, I thread the needle. I just see the space needle right in the center of it. Then I just, I start to breathe. I start to relax. And then I wander the paths and... It's a very sacred space to me. You know, it has everything uh, at at any time. Uh, I've been surrounded by just flocks and flocks of whirling sparrows or those giant sequoias. Um, There are young djembe drummers. There, uh, you know, there can be an older Japanese man playing a wooden flute. Um, There are eagles, you know, there are those camels.
1: (laughs) The camel sculpture?
0: Yeah, the cable sculpture. I visit them every time, Uh you know. Um, And you can see so much. You can see Puget Sound. You can see salt water. So I just feel there, when I'm there, that I can breathe, like, okay, everything's going to be all right.
1: I also love Volunteer Park, and if I could be so bold, a place that I love to go is the water tower. When you walk up those steel stairs, you realize that the water tower itself, which is surrounded by this beautiful brick cladding, is a fairly unattractive steel structure. It's in a very prominent position among all these historic mansions, but you walk up those steel stairs. And what I love is you're looking out over all the trees in Volunteer Park, so you really have the feeling that you're kind of like an eagle, kind of up in the air, but yet rooted by this water tower. It's a very, very special place there. so we're launching this podcast just at the beginning of the jewish holiday of sukkot which begins in seattle on october 9th and runs for a full week and for our listeners in the seattle area there's an opportunity to join in a community sukkah building regardless of your religion or affiliation it's on october 9th and 10th from 10 a.m to 3 p.m at mercerdale park on mercer island And the J is partnering with 1MI in the city of Mercer Island to share the traditional Jewish harvest celebration of Sukkot with the entire community. And you can join in decorating and building a sukkah at the Mercer Island Farmer's Market on Monday and Tuesday, October 9th and 10th. They'll provide all the supplies and crafts and music and whatnot. And you can also build your own edible sukkah. You could also join the Gift of Life Bone Marrow Registry to possibly allow your bone and your blood to help somebody in need. And also you can just drive around the city if you're not in the Seattle area or you don't make this event. Regardless of where you are in the world, you'll see these little booths being built all over the world.
0: Yeah, it's really fun to see them popping up. So go look for them, you know, if you see a funny little shelter. But I wanted to say about the Sukkah, too, that one of the things I love about it is it is not this fine architectural space, that it is a handmade Shelter and it's fun. It's called the season of our joy, by the way, uh, Sukkot. The season of our joy. So it's not supposed to be aesthetically beautiful, although you do decorate it, and that's a lot of fun. The other thing I wanted to say about it is because to me it it speaks to our the fragility, the vulnerability, the impermanence of our lives, and it, it it invites us to be open. I think it's an opportunity for people also to think about. Shelter and those who do not have shelter, and the homeless or the house, how unhoused, however you want to say that, because we have so many people in Seattle as there are around the country, and to use dwelling in the sukkah or eating in the sukkah, whatever you're going to do, or just looking at a sukkah as a way to challenge yourself to think in other ways about how we depend on shelter and what we need for shelter and what we can do to help those who do not have the kind of support and shelter that they do need.
1: Well, Mary, thank you so much for preaching your vision and for connecting so many dots from the two Ming-era Chinese stone camels guarding the Asian Art Museum at Volunteer Park in Seattle to the two camels that you encountered in the Sinai Desert And thanks for bringing in the petrified camel bone that, who knows, could have come from one of the camels that carried the Hebrews from a narrow place to one that is much more expansive thousands of years ago. So may your joys and the joys of our listeners expand during this coming season of our joy. Thank you, Mary.
0: Well, thank you. It's been lovely. It's been delightful (laughs) to be talking with you.
1: Join us next time for one of our more intimate explorations of place. Our guest will be Craig Gibson, co-owner and manager of the North Beach Inn, or NBI, on Orcas Island, which is about 60 square miles, shaped like two saddlebags and located near the Canadian border below Boundary Pass. At NBI, multiple generations of Craig's family were born, lived, and died. Craig is a fourth generation owner of NBI, and he's assisted by his fifth generation children. It's a powerful place in that many of their guests return year after year for decades. In 1911, Craig's great-grandfather, John Gibson, purchased the acreage to farm hay and apples. And in 1916, the family shifted from hay to hospitality, erecting tents along its eight-mile stretch of sandy beach for guests. I proposed to my wife at NBI. Fifteen years later, we still bring our children. So I'm especially honored to have a member of the Gibson family to share their stories of Orcas Island on Power of Blaze. So be sure to listen in to our next episode to hear some of them. Thank you for joining us today. Audio engineering by Daniel Gunther. Photography by Joquelle Chandler. Administrative support from Mary Barbour and theme music written by Toma Nakayama and performed by Grant Hallway. With additional music written by Andrew Weathers, as well as by Ryan Love and performed by Fox Hunt. We record on Coast Salish land at the Jack Straw Cultural Center in Seattle's University District. I'm Edward Krigsman and you've been listening to Power of Place, stories of the Pacific Northwest. And if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a review or subscribe to us. And if you know of a place in the Pacific Northwest that matters to you, please tell us about it. We'd love to hear your stories.